Hi, welcome back to the ABBA podcast. I hope you had a, a great Christmas and New Year break. Uh, we've taken a little bit of an extended break, but we're back now. And my guest today is Natalie Collins, a gender justice specialist. And if you're not sure what that is, don't worry. She explains it in, in our chat. But just to warn you that uh, this conversation is tackling the subject of domestic abuse. Um, so if that's something you're sensitive to, just be aware that um, that's what the subject is today. But I had a great time with Natalie. She's an amazing person and I'm sure you will love her and love what she has to say. Here is the interview. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome Natalie Collins onto the ABBA podcast. Natalie, good morning. Morning. Great to see you. Morning. And Natalie is the author of a book called Out of Control. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that book. But Natalie, in the book, you describe yourself as a, a gender justice specialist. What is that? <laughs> well, you know, if you were surprised because you didn't know what it was, that's fine because I made the title up. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I'd, I'd spent about, I've spent over a decade, about 12 years um, working on issues around male violence and women's rights. Um, that's including doing lots of stuff around domestic abuse, child sexual exploitation, some stuff around female genital mutilation, um, some stuff within the church about sexism and about a lack of representation of women on the platform. Um, I, I'm one of the um, people who organise Project 328 and in, in the church what we do is we count the number of men and women on the national Christian platform and then we release the stats every year and we have a database for women who can speak at Christian events called speaker 328 dot info it comes from galatians 328 there's neither male or female were one in christ um what, what is that website again uh, speaker 328.info um and uh basically women can register as a speaker and then event organizers can register and they can find speak women to oh. speak at their events because that was one of the big challenges that event organizers said well we asked a woman but she couldn't make it and we were like there's definitely more than one woman you could well, <laughs> um so yeah so i've done lots of different things i set up a campaign about the 50 shades series series a few years ago the book series and we protested some of the premieres so i do do all these different stuff and and i also do some stuff where I, i'm on on radio and on television and that kind of thing and so often they want a um a neat title of what you do and saying oh, i'm an expert in domestic abuse sounds like i'm an expert in doing it isn't <laughs> <laughs> really what you want and so i kind of settled on gender justice specialist which is a bit tricky because then you have to kind of spend all your time explaining it but um yeah so it's uh, you know for me um gender equality is a bit of a sort of um is it sounds kind of optional whereas gender justice particularly from a faith point of view that as christians we are committed to seeing justice enacted mm -hmm. and so i think for me there's something much stronger about talking about gender justice than gender equality mm -hmm. and actually i don't i think it's it's quite misleading the idea of equality because it sounds like we all just need the same things whereas actually justice is about recognizing that different people need different things in sure. order to thrive and flourish rather than that we all just need to if we just everybody got the same thing it would be it would be fine so i think equality itself is a bit of a problematic framing of this stuff um so yeah so that's that's how i came up with calling myself a gender justice specialist <laughs> and and of course you're 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 a christian um how, how did you how did you become a christian were you young or later in life what how did that happen yeah so um i grew up i was my parents um 
after they got together, they became Christians. They'd gone to, they'd be, both been previously married and they went to one church that didn't like the fact they weren't married and they were living together and um, before I was born. And then they, so they went to the Salvation Army because they said, oh, the Salvation Army will have everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so then uh, when I was born, I was born into a very kind of evangelical, conservative um family and so grew up going to church and it was I mean it's it's like it it was one of the biggest joys of growing up in that faith I think it's probably one of the things that's quite different in the US to the UK about being raised in an evangelical family that it, it didn't come with a lot of the sort of fear fear stuff that I think comes with US evangelicalism I think in the UK it was you know it was like being part of this massive church family we'd do bring and shares like I remember one time when we couldn't go to church for some reason that I was like we've got to have a service at home and we got the Vitalite tub out to make to shit do the collection for the communion and for collection and we did you know all that stuff and so I I grew up like just always knowing God was real always knowing Jesus always not necessarily ever having heard from God for myself or anything like that but just this kind of sense of this is true this is real and and by the time I got to to being a teenager I really wanted to everybody to become Christian so it's my job to bring Jesus to them like it wasn't my job to save them it was Jesus's job but it was my job to get Jesus to save them and so I was very passionate even evangelist you know everywhere I went I was telling people about Jesus um to a degree that was quite problematic really so yeah, <laughs> I think we've all been there yeah so and that you know and then things got a bit more complicated when I got into my late teens but yeah like my my faith uh, comes from this kind of being born and raised within a Christian family um, and then yeah it became more complicated as I got a bit older yeah wow that's that's amazing you know for because for people like me I, I didn't grow up in that kind of atmosphere so the whole thing of becoming a believer was interesting <laughs> well I find it really interesting I love hearing stories of people who became Christians as adults particularly or became Christians when they come from a non-Christian context because yeah. I have absolutely no like my entire childhood was like infused with this um concept of faith and of Jesus like um my parents were not they're not they weren't really a fan of all the spiritual gift stuff they were like we were I was born in the 80s um, and so like my early like early childhood like or mid childhood was was around the time of the Toronto blessing so oh, yeah. yeah so there were there was a lot of toxicity around kind of spiritual gifts so my parents were really yeah. cynical and quite like so I ra was raised with this quite cynical idea of spiritual gifts but also like we we were quite poor working class and um like literally my mom and dad would be like we need to pray that god will give us some money and then the next morning god they'd be like yeah th there was money on the side this morning like do you know like that that was like so it's this really crazy growing up in this time where like god was really tangible and real and provided for us and you know and that kind of thing but um but yeah so i find i love hearing from people who that, mm -hmm. that's not their background but I, I find it it's one of those things where I'm, i love I love hearing how God has moved in people's lives, but there is a kind of disconnect because it's just, my, I've always known God is real and Jesus is real and all that stuff has always been true for me. So it's a yeah. weird to be, if that's not your story. That's awesome. Yeah. That's interesting. You're saying about your parents really were a bit wary of spiritual gifts because didn't I read in your book that when you were born, they were going to a Pentecostal church? 
yeah, they were in an Elim Pentecostal church. Yeah, yeah, I used yeah, to get yeah. That's, probably, that's probably why they were really cynical. <laughs> <laughs> by, the time, by the time I was like two, we'd moved to a, a middle of the road Anglican church. Right. <laughs> I think it was too much for them all. The much, much, much more sober. <laughs> yeah, well, it was more just like, I think, you know, they, yeah, they, I mean, there was a lot of stuff, wasn't there, around that time that was just really dodgy. It was a lot of wacky stuff, yeah. Kind of, it was just weird stuff going on. So I can appreciate it. But I think, you know, in my, as I've become an adult, my own experience of God and of spiritual gifts has been very different to my parents, yeah. I think. So, <laughs> yeah. But you, you get, you, I mean, I don't know how you've got on now up in Sunderland, but I know that you were quite involved in church and you did the puppets and all of that kind of stuff and yeah so i um i we 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 helped to plant a church when we we were in in essex before we moved to sunderland and we'd helped to plant a church there and then subsequently left there and went to we were part of so when me and my husband first got married we were part of like a uh, free church well not free church you know i don't know non-denominational yeah. kind of network of churches um and then we ended up leaving there and um, going kind of tried Baptist church for a couple of years and ended up in a um, Church of England church. Um, and yeah, for us, before we moved up, I'd, we'd been there about seven years. I preached regularly in the church. And then when we moved up to Sunderland, um, obviously it was during lockdown. So we moved up in June. So we haven't found a new church yet. So for a while, I was taking the service once a month doing a puppet like a, a, a all-age service using puppets um yes yeah, so i did that um for a few months but now I haven't been able to continue that but yeah so i've oh, always always been involved in church um yeah. and since we um like i i guess i probably for the last 10 years preaching has been one of the things that i feel called to and it's one of the tests of whether we should stay in a church is a whether women preach and b whether when i ask them if i can preach whether i mean i'm not like it's not like on week two but <laughs> if, if, if there's not many women preaching then i'm like can i preach because like, that's the test of whether they think women yeah. can preach because if it's like well we just don't have any women <laughs> I'm like, ah, hi i'm here <laughs> so, yeah, pick so, me pick me yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we've always been um my husband plays um guitar and, and piano and stuff so we've always done been quite involved in like church stuff but that's interesting it's, because generally in in church it's like the husband comes as the preacher and you know the question is always does your wife is your wife musical <laughs> yeah 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 well this is it it's funny when we went to the church our last church um we uh we arrived and within like oh less than a month i'd, had, I'd been had a word with whether i'd like to help with the kids work like it happened literally <laughs> immediately and i was like no no i mean i can do kids work it's not yeah. that i can't do it but it's definitely not where i'm called to be um yeah so um i think it is really interesting the assumptions that are made when a new family join the definitely, church yeah. people are gifted in um and yeah, it's, I mean, I think preaching is a tricky one, isn't it? Because like, there's something about, there's a great responsibility with that. So when you go into a new church, you can't just like roll up and be like, hi, hi, <laughs> <laughs> ah, you should let me preach. Like, so I do think it is more complex. I mean, you sh I, I guess- That's, that's what I've been doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair though, they're happy for you to look after their kids, which I'd say out of the two. I, <laughs> <laughs> I always think it's funny when people think that women are allowed to help with the kids and, and look after the kids, but they're not allowed to preach. I'm like, look, if you don't trust them with the adults, don't let them anywhere near those young, gradually <laughs> growing minds. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, you've got a point there. <laughs> yeah. 
So in amongst all of this, you've also written a book yeah. um, called Out of Control. Now, what's, what's it about? What, what's the story? <laughs> yeah, so um, the, the, book, um, the book was published in 2019 and um, it's published by SPCK and the, the um, I'm like, I'm just like, I should have a much more smoother answer about what this book is about. <laughs> it's a really, it's a really complex intertwined book. I think that while the kind of general, uh, the general kind of, if you were to give it in a, you know, you're like, your your um, elevator talk, you know, the like lift, if you've got two minutes, what do you say the book's about? Um, I'd say it's a book about helping people to understand where something, um, where, where relationships move from being kind of problematic or difficult into some, somebody being being abusive to another person um, it's written for a Christian audience but it's definitely been written in a way that's accessible to non-Christians or people of other faiths um, anytime I get into kind of Christian stuff I'm a bit like don't worry I know this is a bit weird but we'll, we'll get back to non-weird stuff soon I'm obviously, I'm obviously in the process of, of reading the book and I, I don't find it necessarily specifically a Christian book no um, although you obviously you know, your faith is a part of who you are and part of your experience and everything else. But I, I, I think it's very accessible for people who have no faith at all. Yeah, definitely. I think I've got, I've got lots of friends who are not, not Christian. So, you know, like, I think it is that I wanted to write something that was, um, that really dealt with the stuff that Christians face, but I didn't want to make it so that not, because I do a lots of work outside of the Christian world. So I didn't want to kind of only have it available to Christians. Um, but yeah, so the idea really is for, um, for friends and family and, um, and church leaders and people who work within in kind of caring professions and that kind of stuff the idea is the book will give you a really robust understanding of what domestic abuse is of why somebody perpetrates domestic abuse and why um and and how do we go about making a difference around that but it's been written in a way that's also for if somebody themselves feels like they they might have been subjected to abuse or they're struggling in their relationship it's written in a way that hopefully is accessible for them too and mm -hmm. um, however like the book cover doesn't say anything about domestic abuse it's called out of control couples conflict and the capacity for change and the tricky the reason why it's really difficult to tell people what it's about is because if i say it's about domestic abuse people won't want to read it and they'll think oh it's got nothing to do with me but instantly, yes, because instantly that that creates an image or an idea in people's minds, doesn't it? If you say it's about abuse. Yeah, people people think that. So one of the big challenges we have with responding to issues around abuse is that um, people who are being abused think it happens to those women, you know, not like me. Um, and the family and friends of, of people who are being abused think, um, oh, no, well, it can't be that because because we're a nice well, he's a lovely man or you know she's a ve she's very empowered she's got a very well well paid job you know she can't be abused because she's not one of those women mm -hmm. and so these there's these kind of those women and those men myths which really underpin what how why it's so hard for us to understand this and I think the term abuse or domestic abuse or domestic violence those sorts of t terms they're a bit like a bomb going off in our lives and mm -hmm. if we if we if we don't think it's abuse if we think it's just oh it's a difficult 
relationship or he's struggling a bit or you know I'm I'm making things difficult at the minute you know all of those sorts of reframing it as something like that's not abuse we don't we don't have to deal with all the stuff that when we label abuse comes up because if it's abuse he's probably not going to change if it's abuse I'm going to have to take steps if it's abuse then that means my children's father is abusive and or you know my brother's abusive or you know if or the church leader's abusive or whatever it is and so we are psychologically really really invested in it not being abuse and so the really tricky thing about writing a book about abuse is in order for people to read it you've sort of they've got to think they're not reading a book about abuse so it's it's tricky because um because actually everybody needs to know this 25 percent of women will be subjected to abuse by a partner 72 mm. percent of girls will be emotionally abused by a boyfriend by the time they're 16 about 10 to 20 percent of men are abusive so this is not something mm. you know like we have this i think a lot of people who are outside of this world they think it's maybe like one or two percent of the population and that they could probably go through life never knowing anybody who's being abused or mm. being abused that is at it's impossible there is no way in in the uk that you could go through life and never have spoken to or interacted with or had a relationship with somebody who has been subjected to abuse you know like because it's just so common and i think that's one of the tricky things that it gets put over here in a box because we don't want to believe that anyone we know could be abusive we monster abusers they're awful you know this is what you see anytime you know somebody perpetrates abuse and it's broadcast there's this kind of monstering of them they're not mm. they're not really a proper human being there's something other um, and so then we don't have to face the fact that in my family in my colleague along amongst my colleagues in my church community there's probably somebody who's doing things like that to their partner and so um so yeah so that the book is about trying to help people unpick that but the but the biggest barrier is getting people to want to read a book that's about a topic they they really don't want to believe they need to know anything about so it's it's, it's, it's a hard marketing you know to well, get that's the thing isn't it because people if, if it's lab, if it's marketed as a book about abuse, then people think, well, that's not relevant to me. Exactly. When even, I when I uh, even yeah. if they are suffering abuse. Exactly. Even if they're currently being subjected to abuse, they will. One of the big problems is people do not self-identify that they're being abused. So, like the idea, you know, that like you go to safeguarding training and they're like, give you a scenario, like a case study to work on. And it's like this woman comes to you and tells you her husband's abusing her. Like it, that's just not. Like it's not. That never happens. Abuse is almost always accidental. Um, disclosure is almost always accidental and usually gradual. So when somebody starts disclosing its abuse. They won't be like i'm being abused they'll be like they'll start telling us the least worst things that our partners their partners done and then wait to see how are we going to react because they, they won't necessarily know they're doing so it'll be subconscious but they're testing the water how is this person going to react to the least worst thing yeah. and so if we kind of immediately jump into the like oh well i'm sure we didn't mean it that sounds like a misunderstanding we're immediately showing showing that we're not somebody safe for that person to talk to and so yeah. i think it yeah this whole kind of tricky thing around self-identification and either other identification so even people around us recognizing its abuse even that's pretty poor i think as a society so I, as i said earlier i set up a campaign about the 50 shades series and um 
we did load of media stuff about it yeah, a few years ago and so I was on um I was on this radio program to, like some like national radio station in Ireland I think it was and while I was on air they were doing a poll among their um their listeners to say do you think that 50 shades is abuse do you think that 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 book is about abuse now I can tell you as a specialist in abuse that's what that book <laughs> that book is about abuse and I'm not talking about the kind of alternative sexuality that is yeah. you know actually everything he does he controls um, who she speaks to he controls the contraception she uses he buys the company she works for so he can control where she works you know like he's very very controlling and so anyway I've never, read it and I've never seen it in a, I've so, so if you want like a brief overview of what the the storyline is the storyline is that um christian gray finds women who looks like his mother because his mother abused him as a child well his mother no his mother didn't Whoa. abuse him his mother's boyfriend abused him so he doesn't he likes to find women who look like his mother not like the boyfriend who actually abused him let's find women who look like his mother and then um sexually punish them by having bdsm sexuality yeah, that's, that's basically his mom yeah because he wants to because he wow. yeah that, that's that's the basic narrative of the book like wow. it's not you won't hear that in any of the kind of synopsis <laughs> but that's what the series of the three books is about is about the fact wow. that he likes to find women who look like his mother to punish them right. so yeah. anyway so the book is fundamentally about abuse like there's just no way you could do and, and so but anyway in this poll that they did on this radio station 97% of their listeners said it wasn't abuse and so the, the presenter was like see so what do you say to that? And what I say to that is that we have very low literacy about abuse, that anybody could read Fifty Shades and think it's about anything other than abuse, just shows how many people wouldn't recognise abuse if they were being subjected to it or if someone they know was being subjected to it. So, yeah, so the, the book is really designed to help, help people to recognise abuse. It also talks about stuff around pornography, around masculinity, around how do we raise children to make healthy relationship choices. So it's, it's a really kind of comprehensive book, but it's hard to kind of put into like just the like three sentences in a way that's accessible to people who, and, and help them to realise why they should read it, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great, Natalie. Thank you. And it's interesting. My my mum was a, a a women's rights officer in Stirling Council when she she's retired over twenty years now. And back then it was the zero zero tolerance campaign, um, uh, and it was domestic violence that was being addressed. But you don't call it domestic violence, do you? No, I mean, it, it's been a shift over the last few years. So, you know, in the 70s, the, the first people who really advocated um, that domestic and sexual violence was like bad, you know, like really actually bad were feminists in the kind of 60s and 70s. And there were there were kind of first wave feminists in the kind of Victorian era and beyond um, who generally were motivated by their faith, interestingly. So somebody like... Right. Um, uh, Josephine Butler who um, she fought for the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act um, and that, that act basically meant that any, that because there was lots of um, sexual STDs being passed by soldiers and others using um, women exploited in prostitution um, for sex and um, basically there was um, STDs all over, venereal disease oh. and so they brought in this act that meant that um, women um, who were in prostitution could be 
be dragged in, forcibly investigate, like to check to see if they had a venereal disease and then kept um, imprisoned for six months until it had gone. Um, and the men weren't, there was no problem. The men could continue to use women for sex and pay them, but the women would get, you know, and so J Josephine Butler in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that, that was kind of, I'm rubbish at mm. dates. But anyway, so she, but she kind of fought against that act and got it repealed. Mm. Um, and she was motivated by her faith. She set up um, groups of um, people around the UK praying. And she, actually, she, what she did was as significant in some ways as what William Wilberforce did, but nobody had ever heard of her. And the abuse that she suffered was horrendous from people saying that she shouldn't do this. And the church yeah. was, some churches were involved. But anyway, so, so generally, though, kind of, if we look historically, the first people who identified that in the home families were not this haven um of of rest and, and recuperation and and weren't this kind of haven of loveliness but actually there was a significant proportion of men who were um abusing either their wives or their children particularly sexually with their children and um Freud had realized this. So Freud, back in the day, Freud recognized, and um, he wrote a paper called The Etiology of, um, of Hysteria. And he um, argued that actually the reason why there was this big, lots and lots of women were suffering from really serious mental health problems, which were de described as hysteria. The reason it's called hysteria, as an aside, is because it's to do with, the, uh, they thought that it was to do with your, your womb that made you hysterical, which is why hysterectomy and hysteria have got the same root word, <laughs> because okay. this idea that that women's wombs were like causing them to go mad anyway so Freud came into this context where the idea was women are going mad because of their wombs and he basically spoke to lots of women and, and established that actually all these women had been sexually abused often by their fathers often by other men so he wrote this paper saying the etiology of oppression the kind of root of oppression is male sexual violence towards women and um, within two years he had recanted that that analysis because it was this realization that if he was right there was large-scale sexual violence from men towards women and girls and so basically he um he like rejected that analysis um so it's not that there hasn't been people before the 60s and 70s who said this but in the 1960s or 70s feminists started to really strongly articulate this idea that the family wasn't safe and part of what that involved was developing a terminology and so domestic violence was part of that and and very much we, you know that was within a context where what we were seeing was women being badly beaten and and so over the years as feminist um theory and practice has developed and as research around how men perpetrate abuse has developed um there's been a recognition that violence is much more complex than than simply physically hurting another person yeah. that there's these other forms of violence and so what happened was over time there was this recognition that the term violence did not for, even if those who were in the field understood that domestic violence meant all the you know mental violence emotional violence actually for the general public when you say domestic violence what people hear is he's hit her and what women who were being abused feel is oh well he's not hit me he's not being violent to me yes. and so the term domestic abuse has come in to try to 
um, uh, ensure that people can see themselves in that experience in what that what that term speaks of so domestic abuse is now the kind of much more widely used term though I think you know all of the things that are abuse are also forms of violence but I think that requires a kind of a developed understanding of mm. of what violence is in a way that lots of people just don't get so I think um, that's why we've seen that shift it wasn't like a formal it's not like you look in a history book and go and this day this this is the problem with a lot of women's history so much of women's history is not recorded because we only tell you know um men's history really and so well, the, the victor writes the story doesn't, doesn't isn't it that's generally yeah. the way it is yeah. Yeah, and even I think the powerful write the story. So even if it's not a case of where the loser doesn't get to tell it, I don't know whether women are the losers in this because we've fought and seen lots and lots of um, changes. But actually, when you go to, you know, when you go through school, you don't learn about feminist history. You just learn mm -hmm. about men's history because, you know, why would it be important to know about <laughs> things well, yeah. with women? You, Who knows? Why? Why would we learn about wars? You learn, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But it, but it's fascinating to me that this is something that's been going for centuries. You know, I, I, you were talking about the, the early feminists, and I, you know, I was reading about a, a lady called Lucretia Mott. She was a Quaker. Um, yeah. And, but you're talking, that was the 1800s. When she yeah, was campaigning for, for women's safety as well as campaigning against yeah. slavery. You know, and you quote Sarah Grimke in your book as well. Yeah. And that's the early 1800s. She was, you know... It's incredible yeah. that we're still talking about these issues more than a century later. Yeah, and I think, you know, the reality is that one of the tricky things about feminism is feminism is when any woman wakes up and goes, oh, it's quite hard to be a woman. Like, that, like basically, in a way that it's not hard to be a man. Like, obviously, lots of people wake up and realise that it's hard because they're poor or because yeah. um, because of capitalism or because of whatever. But actually, feminism is, is when women wake up and go, oh, it's really hard to be a woman. And so unlike Marxism, where Marx kind of sat down in the British Library, created a system, created what Marxism was, feminism is much, much more complicated because it's yeah. where every women realise things are difficult. And because we don't tell women's history this you know before Sarah um, Grimke before Lucretia Mott before you know at any time where women have been on this planet and there has been patriarchal oppression and, and, and male violence towards women there will have been women, women working to combat that but the tricky thing is we don't hear those stories we don't have that we don't have those narratives you know we, we don't have kind of social history you know it's not recorded as often and so um so yeah, so I think it is sad because we're constantly reinventing the wheel because every woman who wakes up and realises it's hard to be a woman often will never realise that that makes them a feminist and often won't, have, won't then have access to feminist history. And so everybody, every woman, not every woman, but most women are waking up to this and then trying to make a difference in a context where they don't even necessarily know what that's called, you know. And so I think it, it, it does create real challenges to creating a cohesive movement change because also what is going to make that woman's life better and what is going to make the women in her context better might actually make women's life worse in this context in a different uh, context so for instance you know within the west we have um 
you know, kind of cap the kind of industrial revolution led to this idea that women should be housewives and stay at home um, while men go out and do the work. Now, that's not a kind, you know, the Christians sometimes have this idea that that's what God ordained things to be. Like, it just didn't exist. Like that was, not, the Bible did not have housewives. Like it's just like a really- Women, women were in the fields, they were milking the cows, they were digging yeah, the you know, that, that people the worked as households. And that actually there's something really interesting about the fact that the biblical model is one where a household works in partnership together and that we we don't have the facility for most people to do that anymore and so um for for the west you know in the 70s and 80s this kind of rejection of the housewife and reject and women being able to go out to work was very liberatory for lots of women but if you look in other parts of the world where women are you know where women are expected to do hard labor get up at half three in the morning cook their husband's dinner cook their son's dinner then they've got to do like 12 hours work and then they might get some food themselves actually you know what i think some of those women were quite welcome like to be a housewife so this yeah. idea you know it's, inter it's interesting because some of the countries i've visited the men are lazy so-and-sos yeah it's the women that go and do everything yeah. well this is it and it, i think it's you know it's interesting i was in a debate with um a, a complementarian um pastor a while ago um and uh, like a lot of the kind of thing around complementarians is, you know, that actually men are called to protect women. And even in like persecution, men are called to kind of die first, take the bullet first. That is the call of the man. Like that is just not what you actually see across human history of men and women's relationships. And it's not what we see around the world. You know, the, the persecution that women are subjected to across the world as Christians is compounded by the fact that they're already subjected to violence from being women by the men in that that are also christians that they're already dealing with male violence and sexism and patriarchy and misogyny and then on top of that they're also abused because of their faith so it's not like in in context of persecution women are having an easier time of it than the men who are you know going forward and doing that actually they're dealing with this uh, kind of double weight of of pain that the men don't have to deal with and i think there is kind of this perpetuation of this idea that you know well women are delicate and you know, look at like the victorian women like where they were wearing clothes where they physically could barely move like but actually do you know how heavy those dresses were like these women would have had to be quite strong just to physically wear the dresses big, big that they wore. Corsets and... yeah you know i mean it's just it's shocking when you kind of like take the whole kind of picture and i think a lot of the time the reason that we're in these conversations um, where there isn't that recognition is because we're just looking at our tiny window here and going this is how it is here and so we can we can kind of extrapolate that and you can't it's a much more complex picture yeah so it's really interesting because obviously you 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 are expert in this area how do you integrate faith with with what you you do and, and what you see and how does that impact you faith-wise yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one because I've, um, it's a struggle within the feminist world. Like, quite rightly, feminists are quite suspicious or anti-faith. That faith has been used against women um, forever to, you know, since Eve. <laughs> You know, we talk about like Eve being responsible for the, you know, eating the apple, but like, you know, there's lots of, lots of kind of theologians who say, well, th there's evidence that Adam didn't tell her she shouldn't eat it. Like, so actually, is she <laughs> responsible? And B, like when God's like, 
you did this and Adam's like wasn't me like it was like Shaggy you know like that Shaggy song it was like that but like you know the first time a man was asked to be held accountable for what he'd done wrong he's like it wasn't me it was it was that woman that you gave me so it's the woman's fault it's God's fault who it's not the fault of is the man you know right from the beginning (laughs) and we we still and we men still do it (laughs) yeah I think you know I think there is a you know, I think both it's a human condition to be in denial and refuse to take responsibility. But I think it's something we definitely see within male perpetration is this avoidance of responsibility. And within, within the context of what we're talking about, it's like, you know, I, I don't know if you meant me talk about it in the book, but it's like, well, look at what she's wearing. Yeah, victim blame. You know, it's like constantly lots and lots of the ways that, you know, when men have affairs, the question is, well, why wasn't he happy at home? You know, when men are violent, well, what did she do to wind him up? When men are sexually violent, well, what was she wearing? You know, all of that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, when, when men are subjected to harm, rarely is it the man's fault. You know, there's lots of things that might be at fault. But if, you know, if a man is raped, nobody says, and what was he wearing? They, you know, like that's not, that's not what's going to be asked, um, you know, and I mean, you know, the vast majority of rape happens within prison to men, that's where men are generally, or, you know, potentially within the military as well. But, you know, I think actually nobody, the blame, the, the kind of blaming narratives are definitely very different for, for male victims. And obviously when anyone's victimized, that's ter- terrible. So I think, um, you know, since Eve, um, theology and faith and Christianity and other faiths um you know there has been um blaming of women the mistreatment of women layered on you know kind of what God wants for women um and so across history I can understand why um the feminist movement has been very found faith to be very problematic Mm. However, every single institution in the world is patriarchal and problematic. You look at Hollywood, we don't go, right, well, we shouldn't make films anymore because of Harvey Weinstein. We don't, you know, we don't look at British gymnastics and go, right, well, we shouldn't do, you know, have competitive gymnastics because of what Larry Massar did. You know, we, we don't look at, or, you know, we don't look at these other um, institutions. And I think obviously the, the, the religious institutions have a different um an additional layer in that there's a morality that comes along with them and that this isn't just about a kind of making nice entertainment or you know you know or music creating nice music this is about kind of fundamental to something about the the soul of who human is and that 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 religions are trying to speak into so i understand it's even more complicated however for me um Growing up in the church, I I learned a lot of really problematic stuff. So I loved growing up in the church, but I learned a lot of problematic stuff about um, what it meant to be a woman and what relationships meant and how we should enact relationships. I learned that, you know, don't have sex before marriage, but didn't learn anything about consent (laughs) and didn't learn anything about actually not having sex before marriage it's not like it's it's not going to fix the fact that male violence exists it's not going to fi- fix the fact that actually there's coercion and that kind of thing um and i learned that that it's my job to save people i learn you know it's my job to get jesus to save people which kind of basically just means that you know <laughs> it's still my job it's my job you know that i that forgiveness is really crucial and not that forgiveness isn't crucial but actually that essentially you should just kind of 
like forget stuff. Wipe, you know, that forgiveness is wiping the slate clean. Well, forgiveness you know? is used as a way of glossing over things, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, the type of forgiveness we hear God offering us, you know, wash me and I'll be whiter than the snow. Like, I'm not sure that that is exactly how forgiveness is framed for one human being to another. Um, and even when what Jesus washes us and we're whiter than the snow, like we still have to deal with the consequences. If I chop someone's leg off and then I, um, they forgive me, they're still going around with just one leg. Like for, God doesn't like make everything better. Like the consequences of sin remain, even though forgiveness liberates. Do you know what I mean? Like they, and that's the tension of being in a, in a faith. But actually that's not, I grew up with this kind of idea that forgiveness was just about wiping that slate clean. So I grew up with lots of really tricky messages about what it meant to be a girl, what it meant to be. And, you know, my parents were quite like, my brother was never allowed guns, you know, like they were, that my dad was like quite, um, was not hyper masculine, but my mum was a housewife. And so there was this kind of, this is the roles that, that women kind of, you know, don't really, my mum never learned to drive, for instance. And that wasn't necessarily a Christian faith thing, but I, when you're young, you just, all of that, whatever's different about your situation, you create a narrative around a, and a, a kind of framework around that. And for me, it was all mixed up with being a Christian and being in a Christian family and how women should be. And, you know, we went to a church where women in leadership, I think one of my vicars was probably one of the first women who was ordained so it wasn't you know so anyway and so I grew up with all these ideas about what it meant to be um to be a Christian and then when I was 17 I met a boy and um, he was the same age as me and um and he said he was a Christian so that was the big box tip so that's all you need to do make sure you don't have sex and that he's a Christian in the end um and so actually it turned out he wasn't a Christian but nobody had taught me that you know you've got to do some discerning like it's just yes he's washed in the blood he prayed the prayer he's in the end you know so I ended up in this relationship um and uh I said I didn't want to have sex before marriage I thought that was all you had to do, just say it, that's it. And then they respect it at the end. And actually, um, within 12 days, he coerced and manipulated me and essentially sexually abused me into a sexual activity. Um, within six months, I'm pregnant. Um, but by the time I'm 18, I'm married because that was the only way to, you know, really, as a Christian, resolve all of this. <laughs> just marry him. I'll make it all better. So then 18, I'm married to somebody who was actually very dangerous, very abusive, um, hurt me in lots and lots of different ways was regularly having affairs by the time we were 19 he'd be, be started to having relationships with teenage girls and um, which I reported to the police which led to him being convicted of sex offenses um and um he was uh, very sexually abusive very um emotionally damaging to me um which which led to me at times being suicidal and self-harming um, while also being a teenage mother with a baby right um and so uh, at 20 i um 20 i became pregnant again and i started to get some strength to to try and get out and then um, when i was um, had <clears throat> just turned 21 um, he assaulted me and I was six months pregnant and my son was born three months premature so we then ended up moving to live in a hospital about an hour from our hometown um, and so Joshua um, was in was, he was two pounds six when he was born he was very small and wow. um, he didn't have a bomb because like he didn't have any, there wasn't enough meat for the cheek bless him <laughs> this tiny little it was only like this big and um he's got to really thank you for seeing that on camera yeah <laughs> yeah thank you he was really small and um and after about a month of him being in hospital and like he was on a ventilator he was very very seriously ill i lived in the hospital with him with my daughter who was two and a half um mm. 
at the time my um then husband was um having had had started instigated another relationship with a teenage girl and i had um reported to the police and the police had she denied it he denied it and so um anyway so when we were going through hospital i discovered he was back having contact with this teenage girl so that basically was the kind of catalyst to me to just ending the relationship um and so i um i was living in this hospital with this premature baby and this toddler and um and when we were, when we, when we were going, when I was going through all that after about a month, realizing that actually the reason that this had happened was because of, you know, I, like, oh, and this is, I think, something that lots and lots of women experience is he can do anything he wants to me, but it's when somebody else gets hurt. When, you know, when Joshua was born premature, you know, I spoke to a woman and she was with her partner for decades and he assaulted her mother and she left him you know so i think that we are when we're with somebody who's abusive i think you know women generally are are socialized to put other people's needs first so already we're conditioned to to not not put ourselves you know to not care about ourselves in the way we should um and then we end up in a relationship with someone who's abusive and then we just think look I'll, i'll put up with it maybe it's my fault we put and then actually it's when somebody else is hurt that we're suddenly like actually it's gone too far now like they can do whatever they like to us but when they do something to our kids or to somebody else we care about that's it and so um yeah so I was living in this hospital and um reporting him to the police um and it was really then that actually I discovered God for myself so I'd like as I said you know before I'd grown up in this kind of Christian context and I knew God was real but I never heard God you know for myself I'd never really I'd known God as like I suppose a bit like um you know, if you've got this relative that nobody's at, you know, like, I don't know, like a, a relative that store, the stories of this relative are really, really part of the family law. And they might even be like, you know, they've either gone to a distant land, so you've never met them, but you know about them and they're not in contact, but you know about them and they're really key to how your family function. And, and you know, so it was almost like for me, that was my experience of God as like somebody I knew about and who was, I believed in and knew was real, but I'd never really had a conversation with myself and living in this hospital that's when I really profoundly experienced knowing God for myself and like, you know, like the distant relatives suddenly coming and living in the house with you. <laughs> so you're like, Oh, right. This is what, Oh, this is what you were all talking about. This is amazing. Oh, and so, um, like really, you know, kind of really profoundly, God was really speaking to me um about like i like heard god audibly speak not in a kind of weird like thinking everyone else could hear it just knowing god speaking to me and and god like the first thing that i really like god would tell me just to read my bible and not watch tv just like literally would sit and read this bible from beginning to end you know and and pray and just be there with my kids and stuff and one of the the kind of the the turning point really for me was um god said to me i need you to love me the same whether joshua lives or dies and you know like i mean he was really like ill a lot like you know this was not but this was like intensive care baby you know when he was in Mm. there for a long time um at one point um they couldn't find any more veins to in iv feed him or so they had to put one in his head and um, then he had um, bronchiolitis at one point that was so bad that they had to um, they had to give him a drug to paralyze him so that he couldn't pull his ventilation tube out because it was and he was basically about to be sent he was sent to um, a specialist um, a specialist hospital in the northeast um, that deals with um, lung and heart problems because um, he needed a lung bypass which is where they take the blood out of the body oxygenate and put it back in and there's about a 70 to 80 percent chance of um like severe like severe disability and and um 
and the doctors were like, I, I was like, you know, I was like 21 at this point, like totally on some other planet. I was like, but you'll only do that if it's really serious. And they were like, it is serious. We're sending him to, uh, by ambulance with, you know, ventilated in this little plastic box to get this surgery, this, this operation. And, um, and he just like, he, on the way there, he improved and he never needed it. And so, but like, that was what we were dealing with on a like, you know, a day-to-day -day basis. And I was a 21, I had a two and a half year old and I was doing this as a single parent. And so living in that hospital and, and God said to me, you need to trust me the same. And this was like, I'm, you know, actually could die tomorrow, you know? And, and I, I went, I like went through this process of being like, well, can I do that? Can I? can I, can I make that decision? And having lived with somebody who was so, so dangerous and, and damaged me in so many different ways and, you know, caught, and one of the things that an abuser does is they will take away anything that gives you strength, anything that, and, but they will, they, so anything that could give you strength, the only way it can be used is as a weapon to beat you. It's not allowed to give you strength. And so my faith in that relationship was the thing that meant that I kept forgiving him, that I kept on trying to to, to make things right. And um, so it was used in a way that would keep me there. But any, but it, but I couldn't have a relationship with God because you cannot. It's impossible because the abuser will try to strip away anything that gives you strength, which is what God does. And so, having lived for four years with somebody who um, wouldn't let me have a relationship with God. I was like, actually, do you know what? Like if I lost everything and the only thing I had left was God, if my kids were taken from me and all that was left was God, I, like I know that I'd be okay. And so in that moment, I chose to say, I'm going to trust God. Like, and if Joshua dies and I, from that day forward, I never prayed that Joshua would live. I just prayed for God's will to be done. And for the rest of my life, actually, that's my prayer. Always. My prayer is, you know, your will be done. Like it's not, can I, can you make it, I, you know, I might have ideas about what I'd like to happen, but that fundamentally I'm not interested in what I want to happen. I'm interested in God's will being done regardless of anything else. And so, um, so yeah, so living in this hospital and making that decision to, to, um, to trust God. Um, and you know, Joshua did get better. He's now 15 and pretty amazing. He is, um, he has some behavioral issues linked to being premature, um, but his physical health is, is great. Um, and um and yeah megan who's um now 17 um and so you know both of them it's, it's been complicated and messy it's not simple um i'm gonna get back to your original question in a second I right. nice. um, yeah, so 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 went through this um really really profound experience of actually the thing that liberated me was dying to all the things I wanted, which is really a very anti-feminist message. It sounds like, actually, it sounds really problematic, but actually like in the time since then, the person I've been able to become and the way that I've been able to live has been truly liberating as, as a woman. And my feminism, I discovered feminism partly through um, going on a course that helped me to understand I was I had been abused. Because even at this point, after all that, stuff I still hadn't realized that what was going on was abuse I got um, mm -hmm. referred to a, a course um for for women who've been abused and I was like oh I don't need to go to that but they offered like two hours free childcare so I was like oh I'll go that's when I started that's when I, that, that first session of that course after my son had actually come out of hospital by that point that's when I first discovered that I'd been abused like all this wow. stuff had been done to me and I didn't even I wouldn't have called it abuse until that point and so um so yeah, so I think for me, the whole question of 
um, my uh, of cr the Christian faith and abuse and and feminism is really it's really complicated because I totally recognise why feminists are so opposed to to Christianity and to religion because actually I grew up in a context which really disabled me from making good choices when I met somebody who was abusive. It disabled me from recognising the abuse. Wow. It disabled me from asserting boundaries. It meant that I focused on forgiveness rather than my own well-being or my children's well-being. <laughs> you know what I mean so like actually all of that stuff is entirely true but it's also true that I literally would be dead without Jesus and and I would not have been able to discover the level of liberation that I have without this faith and so for me like I guess I embody this experience of of um the complexity of faith as an ambiguous resource for women um that it can be really problematic but it can also be really empowering liberating yeah. and so I think that's yeah that that's I, I think that's answered your question <laughs> in around the house that's great Natalie thank you it's interesting isn't it because elements of the Christian church have used feminism as a way of demonizing some women who stand up for themselves but what you're saying is that you can be both you can be Christian and feminist yeah and I think it's a there's always going to be tension so for instance one of the biggest, probably one of the biggest tensions within, you know, some people might say it's the abortion issue, but actually that's issue based. I'd say on an ideological level, a much more kind of stripping it right back, the biggest challenge is that um, feminism says women need to own themselves and women need to um, belong to themselves and women need to kind of be empowered to make the right choices for their lives and, and that kind of stuff. And, and what Christianity says is death to self is how true liberation comes. So this idea of the self-emptying, mm -hmm. the technical name is kenosis, kenosis. And this idea that we need to die to ourselves. And, you know, in Philippians 2, where it says that God became a human baby and gave up all power. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so there is this kind of message of, of dying to self, which is the thing that is probably most opposed to, to a feminist analysis. However, the way I make sense of it is you can't die to yourself until you own yourself. And so for most women, kenosis is actually an impossibility because they, because women are, are raised within a society where they're told that they should belong to a man or they should belong yeah, their father or their husband, which, you know, historically and within the Bible was how things looked, that, that society says that they should look a certain way, they should think a certain way, they should feel a certain way, and that they're always wrong and they're always judged. And so women's, women's kind of socialized systems are often towards self-negation in a way that's really toxic and, and is not honoring of the the imago dei within though it's not honoring of who god is in them you know that we all we believe as christians that inside each of us is, we're created in the image of god and so that image of god need, means that we should honor you know you can't you know it says love your neighbor as yourself you've got to love yourself right like that's that's the, that's the first bit in order to and, and there's an assumption that to love your neighbor you do love yourself and so for women that assumption is it cannot be cannot be is not always accurate that for lots of women loving yourself is definitely i remember reading c.s lewis's mere christianity and he talks about how loving the sinner hating the sin is really easy to understand because he's always loved himself but he knows some of the things he does are wrong and i read that i was like oh. i just can't imagine the privilege of being able to go i've always loved myself <laughs> and so for most women for most of human history we've not owned ourselves. and so for me i would say that feminism is 
the crucial first step in women within Christianity. It's the missing piece for a lot of women is that they haven't known to own themselves. So they don't know how to die to themselves because how can you die to yourself if you don't own yourself? And so that for me is um, a tricky thing. And I think that that's where feminists would most oppose Christians, that when mm. women are then told to die to themselves, it's like, hang on a second, she's only just started owning herself. Why are you wanting her to give herself up? But I think when that comes out of a place of ownership and out of a place of really, truly um, of self-autonomy, then actually self self-death and choosing to die to what God wants is a can be a liberating process but only if you are in strong enough relationship with God to work out what is patriarchy what is misogyny and what is actually God's because you know there is real uh -huh. liberation in that but you've got to have the ability to discern what that really looks like and I don't think that's really well developed in most people because they're not encouraged mm. to develop it and part of the issue is it's not that and I'm not trying to make excuses here but it's not that church deliberately tries to um, manipulate and twist but it, but in effect that as that's actually what happens is that things are twisted so things like you know um, think about other people first it's, well the bible doesn't actually teach that you know it says as well as yourself yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but it's twisted and it's like you know, if you think about yourself, if you're doing something for yourself, in some areas it's like you're labelled selfish, uncaring. And so I think there's something in the, the feminine psyche that, that wants to be caring, wants to be um, unselfish in, in a sense. And it's almost like those kind of things are used to manipulate that desire. Yeah, and I think it's, I think that, it, that what you, I think what we often see within kind of Christian teaching is a lack of contextualizing. So, you know, I think um, just kind of going, this is a message for everyone. Like, I actually know, it, you know, how we've got to look at the context, both the context of the passage, but also the context of, of ourselves and how, where are we located? Yeah. So, you know, when you look at, um, you know, for instance, uh, Jesus' teachings, usually they're stories in which you've got to work out who you are. So if you look at the prodigal son story, there's a story and there's various people in that story and you've got to work out which person you are in which part of your life at this point in order to apply that story to your life that's the the, the really profound thing about Jesus teaching is it's like multifold it wasn't like here's a rule book follow it it was like here's some stories like see where you find yourself in them and how how you find you you know where, how do you navigate yourself in those stories and so I think like yeah that a lot of the time these kind of messages are decontextualized and and we as human beings become decontextualized which is mm -hmm. irony given that we have a faith which was about a god coming to make himself part of our context like like the, the incarnation is fundamentally about god contextualizing himself in our world and going actually in order for me to be able to bring healing and 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 to save this this people this world i'm gonna have to locate myself in it and yet we as Christians generally try to decontextualize and delocate it as, as like universal truths that don't have a context, which is the craziest, craziest thing when you think about the meta narratives of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So much in that. <laughs> there is, isn't there? I was just like, oh, wow. Like, wow, I've got to think a bit more about that. <laughs> and sometimes you find yourself saying things to go, oh, I didn't know I knew that. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, one of the things I found fascinating in the book, you know, obviously you, you unpack 
what abuses, what kind of identifiers, you know, you talk about the isolator brainwasher threatener, all of those kind of things. But but you say that um, abuse is not a relationship issue. And, and so sometimes, especially in church, I think, we try to address it by marriage counselling, marriage therapy. And you say that in cases of domestic abuse, that's not actually a helpful solution. What can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, so the big, the biggest problem the church has with abuse is misdiagnosis. So we, um, the church does lots of really terrible things around when they found out somebody is being abused. They do lots of really problematic or harmful things. But that's because usually by the time they start doing them, they've decided it's not abuse. So because what actually happens is most people, if you were to ask a church leader or you to ask somebody in a congregation, like what would you do if somebody was being abused by their husband? Um, most of the time, yes, you get like really hard line kind of fundamentalists who would be like, well, I'd tell her to forgive, <laughs> you know, and obviously we've got teaching out there that says that sort of thing. But for the vast majority of like people it, located in churches today, if you were to ask them, what would you do if someone was being abused in your congregation? They would be like, we'll be horrified and we would challenge it and we would support her and we wouldn't expect her to stay and we would want to get her all the support she needs and we'd find somewhere for her to go. You know, those are the sorts of theoretical ideas people will have. Yeah. The problem is that when they are confronted by abuse, they've already done this work of deciding it's not abuse. <laughs> and so they misdiagnose it as something else. So they'll go, somebody, a woman will come and say, you know, I'm, I'm really scared of my husband. Now their husband's a member of the preaching team or the music team. And, and nobody, they, this person that they're, con, 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 um, they're disclosing to says, um, thinks, well, I, he's not scary. He's lovely. I mean, she, maybe there's, there must be more going on here because my assessment of this person is that they're safe. And so if their experience of them is unsafe, there's probably something, you know, is she quite anxious? Is there, you know, do they need help with how to talk more? kindly to each other do they need does she need to learn how to say i statements not you statements? do you know what i mean like you can see it can't you the minute right. somebody comes with a problem in that 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 is located within their relationship the first question is because we also have this idea that we're all sinners and fallen short of the glory of god right the first thing is that we all must be at fault <laughs> like that's that's what that narrative basically leads to it's not intentional that's not what we think we're yeah. saying but well, that is what we're saying, that we all must be at fault. So, yeah, so, so you're asking her, what's she doing wrong? <laughs> yeah, not because you actually think she should be to blame for abuse, but because if we're all sinners, then in any situation where there's an interpersonal problem, everybody must have a part to play. And so I, what she needs to do is work out her part in that, and then we'll work out what his part in it is. Well, it's always that whole thing of like, well, it takes two to tango. Yeah, of course. It is like, because, and actually that, that can be true for lots of relationship issues, but just because something takes place in the context of a relationship doesn't mean it's a relationship issue. Mm. So when he is abusing her, that is an abuse issue and the location of the issue is in him. So if we look at like, if this is two people, right, and relationship problems exist in the middle space between those two people, yeah? Um, I've just realized for people who are listening, <laughs> not looking, they're going to be like, what is this? So if you've got, like, you've got a person on one side and a person on the other side, and in the middle is where the relationship problems are exist between yeah. those two people. And actually the current definition of domestic abuse in the UK reinforces that. It says, you know, um, an acts of I did, like, like abuse between two people. So actually even in our kind of, it's codified in our legal and not legal, but in our kind of language around abuse is this idea of it 
it being between. But actually, abuse happens from one person to another. The right. reason that it's abuse is that it is one way to the other person. The reason it is abuse is because one person, that the, what when somebody is abusive, what they believe is that I own my partner and I'm entitled to that's, get one. That's the thing, yeah, the ownership thing. The, yeah, and so you can't fix that by solving the relationship problem because yeah. relationship problems are not about one person thinking they own and are entitled over another person. Like that's not like no no marriage course is designed to solve that problem because that's not a relationship or marriage problem. That's an abuser problem. So I guess there's a difference between an abusive relationship and a volatile relationship. Then you know, yeah. relationships can yeah. be volatile but not necessarily abusive in that sense. Yeah, so I would say um, I never use the term abusive relationship because I think it reinforces this idea that it's a relationship problem. So, uh, but I, I, it is, and lots of domestic abuse services use it. Like this isn't like just like a layperson's yeah. thing. Lots of people use it for lots of reasons, but it's it's wrong and we should not use it. So I'd say um, I think we've got to be careful because I think once we start saying there could be a volatile relationship that's not abuse that then that then creates yet another um barrier to women getting the help they need because right. then people will go oh it's one of those volatile relationships we've heard of so immediately <laughs> basically i would say that where somebody is coming to you and talking about being fearful talking about being undermined talking about being like talking in a way that sounds like they don't they and actually often usually somebody who's being abused will say feel like it's their fault so they'll be saying i keep winding him up i keep upsetting him so yeah. to some degree those people outside that situation who go oh well we need to help you with your confidence or we need to help you they're doing that partly because they're listening to what the person's saying who's saying i keep upsetting my husband and now he's hurting me like they're they're hearing what she's saying but actually like what this is why discernment and wisdom and like and being kind of really listening to people is important because if he's hitting her and she's saying I've, I've, I've made him hurt me. Or if he's controlling her in some ways, if he's saying she shouldn't see her mum anymore or that she shouldn't go to church anymore or that she shouldn't, um, she should be doing different things with the kids. You know, actually we need to just ask some, like we need to be asking more questions. I think rather than just accepting at face value somebody's assessment, which I think is good pastoral practice, right? Yeah. Like it's good pastoral practice to be just not to be questioning them about whether what they're saying is true, but kind of asking, oh, like what is the context of this? Yeah. yeah, and like what what was you know what has been going on that's led to this? You know, like um to try to gather more information, but essentially. Mm -hmm. The, the problems that, that Christians have are generally that they misdiagnose an abuser as a, a difficult relationship. Right. And, and so then the, the problem become about the relationship. The, the second, so that's first step. <laughs> the first step is they see it as a relationship issue and not an abuse issue. The second step is when they do realize it's an abuse issue, they then start to legitimize the reasons why the man's abusive, particularly if they like him. So they'll be like, oh, well, you know, he's had a hard childhood and he's, you know, you know, he's struggling with pornography and he's, you know, like, and suddenly, because what they don't want to accept is there's someone in their midst who is abusive and they didn't know, who is deliberately hurting their partner. So one of the things we don't talk very often about is the fact that it's actually really beneficial to be abusive. Now, I hope none of nobody's listening to this or watching this is like, oh, like, oh, like she's advocating this. I'm not advocating abuse, but being abusive 
actually has a lot of benefits. And within the church, we assume that if somebody's abusive, they're a tortured soul who's having a terrible time. Do you know who's having a terrible time when someone's abusive? The person who's being abused. <laughs> like yeah. the abuser is not having a terrible time. And it's this idea that he must be tortured in some way and wounded in some way that's causing, you know, let the hurt people hurt people type rhetoric. That this idea that he's the hurt one. Do you know who's the hurt one? She is. The kids are the hurt ones. Stop putting all your emotional, you know, your compassion into him because he's not the one, he's, he's the one who's causing the pain here. And yes, he might have his own pain, but fixing his pain is not actually going to stop him being abusive. Yeah. What's going to stop him being abusive is recognizing that he believes he owns his partner and he believes he's entitled to do what he wants to her. And until he stops thinking that he's going to be abusive, no matter how much counseling you give him. But then the problem is that the patriarchal element of church encourages that idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like this is like, um, yeah. So this idea that one of the things that I often talk about when, when people ask me about kind of headship and submission and churches which advocate for headship and submission, um, that I'll often talk about that actually um, they churches who are that that would be termed complementarian. So churches that believe that men and women are complementary from each other and so have different gifts and different skills and different callings because of those complementary gifts. Now. Um, those churches can be very good. Uh, often they're not, but they can be very good at supporting somebody's being abused. Like there's no reason why believing that stuff could, means you can't help people who are being yeah. abused. <clears throat> but you cannot speak to the fundamental beliefs of an abuser because if you think that men are called to have leadership of, over women, you are advocating that God has given men, that men have God-given entitlements. Yeah. They have God-given entitlements. Yet yeah, you can say all you like that it's about leadership, which is servant-hearted, and it's about sacrificial leadership but you are saying that men are entitled to things that women are not entitled to and you're you know and and that's that on a kind of not necessarily not, not not kind of biologically but in terms of what they should be allowed to do or mm. have or be and so you create a system in which you perpetuate you know for somebody who's not abusive complementarian theology isn't necessarily a problem because you know the vast majority of people who successfully live in complementarian relationships do so because the man is not abusive and because um actually if the woman says <clears throat> i want to do this i want to do that generally they'll agree that that can happen because they actually function as egalitarian, which is the other form of theology where men and women are equal, because because actually the man doesn't take ownership <laughs> and doesn't take those entitlements. Yeah, and that basically almost that's what's argued is that complementarian says, but you know, God gives men power over women, and men are, men choose not to take that power in a way that it, at all they choose to kind. Do you know what I mean? It's like. Yeah. So, but actually this, this theology is very, very dangerous in the hands of somebody who's abusive because it legitimizes that they're right and it legitimizes to their partner or to their spouse, their wife, that actually that's how things should be. And so both parties are, there's a, there's a, a theological um, legitimizing of this abuse. Um, so yeah, so I think there's, that's, that, that's the next barrier is this well, he must be somehow, there must be something wrong that we need to fix in him rather than actually, do you know what's wrong? That we need to look after her. We need to care for her. We need to support yeah. her needs um, rather than him. Yeah, that's That's really interesting. But it, it leads me to then ask, so, I mean, obviously you talked about there are men who believe that kind of theology who are not abusive. So yeah. is it, are some men born abusers? No. Or does something no. happen to make them abusers or... 
usually it's about trial and error and it's about the socializing messages so all men are socialized into patriarchal ideas of masculinity yeah. um, lots of men cannot meet those patriarchal demands yeah. so if you go to school and you don't like the things that you're supposed to like to be a a, a man or a boy if you go to secondary school and you don't like football and you don't like competitiveness and you don't like like if the th if you don't like a lot of those things you'll discover quite quickly that patriarchy and masculinity is not benefiting you as much as that guy over there who is is you know kind of really uh hyper masculine you're you know yeah, there's I, a scale around that yeah I looked at those guys they were good at football they were handsome they, you know, <laughs> quite early like at the, there is a group of men who discover it as young boys that actually this system is not benefiting them yeah. um yeah and then as and so there's lots and lots of men who grow up and discover very quickly that patriarch as i later on in the book i talk about the protective factors to protecting boys from from growing up and being abusers mm -hmm. so some of that is about like some of it's just that some children uh, their personality is naturally more or less inclined towards dominant dominant kind of you know like for instance i would have probably worked would have done fine as a boy in school <laughs> it wasn't great as a girl but as a boy because i'm quite quite loud and i'm quite you know my husband is much but is much more traditionally how you would expect a, a woman to be and i'm much more traditionally how you'd expect a man to be so for me for him growing up in school he learned very early on that this these systems of patriarchal dominance of men over women like actually it didn't help him because I, like he didn't he wasn't able to pass the man the man test really do you know what i mean and so i think that some of it's about that I think then on top of that, you've got experiences of, um, you know, parenting, how you're parented. If you're parented in a way where you're raised with entitlement, <laughs> that's going to have, you know, so if you're given everything you want and you're spoiled, that potentially is going to lead to you as an adult thinking that you, people owe you something. That, you know, that, and, and particularly if you've been socialized as a, as a boy into one day you'll have a wife and she'll have some nice children for you. You know, if those are the messages you're hearing, again, those things are going to contribute. And I guess... If, if you grow up in a, the context where your mum does the cooking, the cleaning, the washing, the tidying up, the, you know. And if you, if you go straight from there into a relationship with a woman and living with a woman and you don't actually have like, you know, a prolonged period where you have to look after yourself without your mother doing all your washing still, then you are, you've got certain ideas about and certain skills that you have and haven't developed, right? And so you go into a relationship. If you, if you start a relationship with somebody who, um, who, you know, kind of just does those things and then, and then what happens is the one, she, she then moans and says, I'm not, I, I don't want to do all this anymore. And so he's like, well, I don't want to do it. And so what he does is he does the washing badly <laughs> and he just he puts a pink sock in there. And then she's like, oh, well that, you know, why did you do that? And he's like, and then does it work? And, you know, cause actually a lot of what abuse is, is, is finding out it works. Yeah. So when I, when I go into that first relationship and I, you know, like, so there's I, the story of um, this guy who was a self-confessed gaslighter who makes it, you know, basically has relationships with women and makes them think they're going mad, right? He didn't wake up one day and think, I want to make women think they're going mad when they're in a relationship with me. What happened was he was cheating on his girlfriend and his girlfriend suspected it. And so he said to her, um when she went you're you're cheating on me and he out the first words out of his mouth were you're paranoid you are paranoid you think i'm cheating on you is you 
she's grown up in a society which says women are paranoid that men are cheating on them she's been raised in a society which says women are mad right she then immediately goes she to his surprise she goes oh am i <laughs> is it me then and he says yeah it's you and then discovers it works. So that a lot of abuse is trial and error. Mm. Like it doesn't, abusers don't start off being like violent, horrible people. They start off like trying things and realizing it works and they don't have to take responsibility and they get away with bad behavior. So they do it again and they discover it works again. And so a lot of, so abusers are people who will learn, it's learned behavior. And obviously if you've grown up in a household where you've seen a man treat a woman like that, you're learning very clearly. And actually most, most men who grow up in households where they see a woman being abused by a man do not become abusive. Mm. And, and, and you are not more likely as a woman to become abusive if you've grown up in a household where you've seen a man be abusive to a woman or, or, or vice versa. As a man, if you grow up in a household where you see a woman being abusive to a man, you are not more likely to become abusive. So this isn't about trauma being enacted in your life. It's about the fact that you're learning what the role of a man is and you're learning what the role of a woman is. So this is about learned behavior that, that starts in the macro of the society and the laws and the media. And then it gradually comes into your community, your peer group, your parents. All of those things are creating a, a context which is either less or more conducive to you developing those beliefs and then you go into relationships and 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 then you gradually learn oh I can get away with this I can get away with that and so that's why our job as a society is to reduce the conducive context to make a smaller and smaller window in which men can develop those sorts of beliefs so it's how we raise our boys. I think it's fascinating that that you're saying that that the, the figures that the research shows that just because you observe abuse in your family doesn't necessarily create an abuser. No, like it absolutely doesn't. Fascinating. Not at all. That, my initial thought would have been, well, there you go, that's all they've known. No, but it's about about 50% of abusers will have seen a male role model be abusive to a woman, but 50% haven't. So it's just, it's not a, it's not a kind of, um, and it's really offensive, you know, like lots and lots of boys who grow up seeing their mums being abused they grow up wanting to protect women and, and being horrified by that. It's like deeply offensive to say that that will turn somebody into an abuser. Like very, very often it doesn't. And it doesn't, it, women don't become, but women are more likely to be abused as children and women are not more likely to become abusive. So th there's just like, there's a maths problem that if you're saying, right, so women, you know, kind of proportionally more women are abused, but like in adult it shrinks and there's hardly any women are abusers unless boys are abused. But like by adulthood, loads of boys are abusive there's something about what what's going on there is much more about a much a much broader conversation about it's not about some people are born evil or not evil mm. you know i believe that everybody is born in the image of god it is that actually uh the we are planted in a garden when we're born <laughs> and that soil um and all of the things all of the th other plants in that garden and the the climate all of those things are going to shape what that plant looks like mm. and so it, it it's why it's, we do have a power to affect change um because you know and and this is the this is the thing about being christians you know i don't know how anybody can do the sort of work i do and not have a faith in something beyond this life because i tell you like that's i don't expect to change everything now but i do believe there will come a world where everything will be different um but yeah i think we need to create we 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 need to develop 
contexts that are not conducive no. to abusers growing um, and that's about that's all of our responsibilities that's about what do we accept from somebody we know if somebody makes a joke about their wife do we challenge it if somebody makes a joke about women being under the thumb do we challenge it you know do we speak out against the use of pornography because it's causing men to develop bad ideas about what women want do you know what i mean so mm. for instance the evidence of this being a, a socialized problem um 20 years ago it would not have been it would have 20 30 years ago it would have been quite unusual for men to strangle women during sex like that would have been and that would have been generally perceived as sexual violence so that's, so a, that's a modern thing then now, yeah yeah so now like obviously there would have been abusers who would have strangled their partner but now 40 percent of women well 70 percent of women report being strangled during sex under 40 um or choked choked had their hair pulled being spat at um like lots of forms of violence within consensual sex so this isn't like somebody who's attacking them this yeah. is within a, a a sexual encounter they've engaged in you know willingly um 30 percent of those um that group so like 30 percent of the 70 no like not 30 percent of 70 that would be wrong but basically 30 percent of of the whole hundred said they wanted to have those acts done to them said 40 percent did not um and and were like just literally women will report that they're when they're just having sex the boyfriend or the guy they're having sex with will literally just put their hand over their, their mouth or choke them um you know or will start pulling their hair or spitting on them and they're like what where did that come from and you know where it's come from it's come from pornography so that's what pornography shows those are the sorts of acts that pornography shows all the time and so that's why our sexual scripts are being developed through that so it's not that suddenly men woke up one day and suddenly loads of them were choking women it's actually that these men probably wouldn't have choked women similarly covid is another conducive context so you might have a guy who on a number of occasions has tried to coerce a woman into moving in with him really early on right because um because uh, you know thinking oh if we get moved in then she can start doing my washing and my ironing and my cleaning and i'll get to see her more and she'll stop seeing her friends as much and, and i'll get her <laughs> yeah i'll get i'll get her all to myself i'll get you know all of this kind of thing right mm -hmm. and he's tried it with a few women and they're like this is too intense like i don't want this right now we've got a global pandemic which says you can't have any physical contact with someone unless you're living with them or unless you're in a bubble with them right so this couple then so then he goes why don't you just move in you know like we want to see each other more so suddenly she moves in and suddenly now he's going to trial and error stuff to see how he gets what he wants and so whereas prior to that that guy might never have escaped escalated his abusive tendencies because he wouldn't have had a context in which a woman would have been happy to do that because the, no. the context wouldn't have allowed for it whereas now covid is creating a context um you know a lot, a lot a lot of abusers are talking about you're going to give me covid if you do that or you can't go out because you're going to catch covid and give it to the kids and then they're going to die no, like up until like last january that was not an argument that would have ever worked with an abuser so what it is about seeing is all the different um tools that an abuser can develop and the content whether the context is is encouraging those tools or um against those tools wow that's incredible mm. that yeah just this blows my mind <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Now, in, in the book, we're running out of time. I don't want to take up too much of your appointment time. <laughs> but you've got a chapter called What Would Jesus Do? And you talk about, you know, as a kid having the bracelets. But obviously, you're addressing what God would say and do in response to domestic abuse. So what what is God's 
thoughts on this? What's his approach to this? What's, what's the theological underpinning of, of combating abuse? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always difficult to go, what would God say? Like, you yeah. know, like, I don't, there's a bit of hubris there, isn't there, of thinking that, you can say. That's why I would say, like, what's the theological yeah. underpinning? What do we, what do we do? Um, what do we, what, what, where do I see? God? How does the church respond? All of that yeah. kind of stuff. So I would say that Jesus said that he came to bring life in its fullness. And so I think fundamentally, where life is not in all its fullness, the church Christians have a responsibility to be part of working out why life isn't all in, in all its fullness and working towards enable it to be that. And some of that is about our belief in um, kind of a, a, a spiritual plane and about our understanding of like that actually some of life in all its fullness or that Jesus brings life in all its fullness through kind of people becoming like, you know, people of faith and through them seeing Jesus's liberation. But I think it's also about all the other stuff that, you know, that is contributing to life not being in its fullness and um, that we can be part of bringing God's truth into. So wherever, you know, the, the, the truth sets us free, right? And so we, I think that Christians, theologically, we have a responsibility to become more literate about abuse because how can we bring life in all its fullness into a context which we don't understand mm -hmm. into an issue that we have no, like that we basically have a load of wrong ideas on? <laughs> That, that's a lot so I think there's lots of responsibility for people to learn about this like it's not this is not just me trying to tell people to read my book but I think they would find that would be a useful first step well, I highly um, recommend your book Natalie I, I find it fascinating excellent challenging thank you thank you I'm not gonna I'm not paying you or anything either so but <laughs> but yeah so I think there's something about um about us learning about this stuff so that we can really truly understand it because so there's um uh, barbara brown taylor talks about the gift of disillusionment that actually disillusionment is is it we have this idea that, dis, that, that disillusionment is bad but disillusionment is about the removal of illusions it's actually about truth mm -hmm. and so we have a responsibility to to work towards our own disillusionment on any issue that we don't understand properly and so i think that there's something about christians really because there's lots of things i can talk about theologically but i think that unless you understand what's really going on with abuse you're going to continue to respond wrongly to it because you're going to misdiagnose it so i think we need to learn and we need to understand and i think beyond that when we're thinking about life in all its fullness if somebody comes to us and talks about how their partner is behaving in ways that are harmful we need to be talking about thinking about how do we bring life in all its fullness to that person and one of the things once that one involved is doing the opposite that the abuser is doing so well so we may say the opposite like you should leave if he's saying you have to stay um but what we're both doing is telling her what to do so what we need to do instead is we need to be doing the opposite so if he says you're worthless we need to say you are amazing like when he's reducing her choices we need to show her there's loads more choices out there that she you know that the world doesn't have to look how he makes it because he you know he's doing you know the devil's work essentially you know like steal killing and destroying right and so you know that's the context in which jesus you know says you know the enemy comes to steal kill and destroy and i come to give you life in all its fullness so our job as christians is to discern where is there steal killing and destroying going on and where how do we bring life in all its fullness that's that's a really interesting approach natalie because my instant reaction would be right we need to get you out of there we need to get you to a hostel or to another home or, or something but that but again i hadn't thought about it but that's taking the power out of her hands yeah like he's just doing just telling her what to do uh -huh. and actually like what the evidence shows is that 
it's much it's, it's much more possible for a woman to stay left if she plans to leave and does it gradually and slowly. So mm -hmm. if somebody is close to us that their partner's abusive, it's not, we might want to jump into immediately rushing into getting her out of there. Mm -hmm. But actually, A, we need to do the work of making her sure she, that's what she wants to do. But B, there's lots of things we might need to put in place. The, the most dangerous point for a woman is, uh, in terms of her partner killing her, is when she leaves or within 18 months of leaving. Mm -hmm. So when we advise women to leave, we are potentially asking them to risk murder, like being wow. murdered by their partner. And so we need to make sure we're, we're partnering with specialist services and the specialist services are massively over capacity and underfunded. So we might need to support them in building that capacity as well. Um, but we need to make sure that we're doing this gradually. You know, like if you think about it, this woman is not just leaving a dangerous person. She's also leaving the person she committed to spend her life with. Mm -hmm. That I think when we move into this, we need to rescue her. We see him as the enemy and we don't, we stop seeing her as a woman whose relationship's breaking down because it is a relationship. The problem is not the relationship, but it is a relationship. Mm -hmm. That's her children's father. You know, if she leaves, there's all these, all these things are going to change. You know, like society is not kind to single parents. Do you know, like the church is even more unkind to single parents. Well, actually they're all right if they've, they're not Christian, right? Non-Christian non single parents, fine, because we can save them and then, you know, be lovely. But if they're a Christian and they be, get divorced or become a single parent, they're like, they're, they're not going to experience a lot of benefits to that in the church or in society so we need to recognize there's lots and lots of barriers to somebody leaving and our job is not just to be like you need to go our job is how do we help them to de de like deconstruct those barriers for themselves and how do we support them in removing those barriers um because there's so much going on so i think you know that practically that's what we need to do in terms of our theology um we've got to think about a theology of power, a theology of gender and a theology of relationships because fundamentally abuser is seeking to have power over their partner, is seeking to control them, have power over them as a result of these beliefs of ownership and entitlement. So we need to be thinking about how do we model power? How do we speak about power? Who is seen as important in our community? What does it mean to have power and what does it mean to give it up? Um, and also what does it mean to learn to own ourselves before we do that giving up if we don't already own ourselves? And mm -hmm. um, the second thing is gender like we need to think about what is our teaching about women and men you know does when when the pastor gets up if it's a man or a woman are they making sexist jokes about how hot their spouse is are they are they like making jokes about you know are they what how does father's day get handled how does mother's day get handled what sort of messages are we sending about what we think mm -hmm. men and women should be so what is our theology of women and men like are we perpetuating ideas of headship and submission if we're not we are still within a context where that's quite normal so what are we doing to combat and to make sure that our church is explicitly challenging that you know do we do we ever talk about the female attributes of God? The fact that God is never described as having a penis, but is described as having a womb. Do you know, like, do we talk about that in, in our, in our churches? Do we talk about the fact that the word for God's compassion is womb, that the Holy Spirit is described using feminine, um, kind of pronouns, feminine, like, and not those pronouns, you know, not technically, but you know, that actually that is a, is a thing. Do we talk about those things? Do we do we not just kind of passively assume that because we women can lead here, that everybody understands that that God values women? You know, do we make sure that women are being asked to preach as much as men? Do we make sure that we are doing, you know, kind of the 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 discipleship of those that we see with the leadership gifting are they all being discipled towards a pathway of leadership that is is non-gendered? You know what I mean? So there's there's all sorts of things we need to think about in terms of how are we 
proactively living out a, a faith that liberates women mm. as opposed to it just being something that we implicitly think we think but haven't really done a lot of work on um, and then our theology of relationships when we preach about forgiveness are we saying that doesn't mean you should accept an abuser hurting you you know like for me i've discovered that um forgiveness does not mean nullifying the consequences of what someone does to us because you can't you know i will forever be traumatized yeah forever i've got two children who like their biological father is very dangerous like i can't no forgiveness is going to make him nice no forgiveness is going to mean that having contact with him is going to be anything other than very very dangerous for them you know so but actually lots of people wow. would think that forgiveness means they have to have a relationship with him because mm -hmm. forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing and oh. um, you know and joseph joseph is a model for forgiveness joseph said i am not going to become vulnerable to my brothers until i've tested them and so he tested how did they behave towards benjamin that's why he did all that mm -hmm. he did all that because he was like i'm not going to show them myself i'm not going to i'm not going to trust them again until i've seen how they treat the other person the, the brother who was like the same as me who was the same had the same mother and the brother who's the youngest and when he saw that they protected benjamin that they changed that's when he was like i'm your brother like he didn't do that until he could be sure and so our our model of forgiveness needs to have like a way of testing whether this person is safe otherwise what we're doing is what what the devil did in um that sounded a bit dramatic didn't it but in when Je when jesus is tested by the devil de the devil takes him up to a high point and says jump down there um, the Lord your God will save you. And Jesus says, do not test the Lord your God. When we are pushing people into relationships with dangerous people or under the guise of forgiveness, we are asking them to test the Lord their God. They know this person is dangerous. Why would you encourage them to test God and whether he's going to be safe? He's not safe. It's enabling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And fundamentally, we need to understand that if we if while we create conducive context for abuse while we don't challenge this stuff while we don't while we encourage women to stay with people who are dangerous what we are doing is we are enabling sin and if there's something we can all be sure god hates it's sin and so if nothing else our responsibility to that perpetrator is to enable them to stop sinning is is to to work with them in a way that is going to prevent them continuing sinning and if we understand that abuser's behavior is trial and error that if we need to create context where that trial and error doesn't work, where every time they try to do something abusive, it doesn't work. And the problem is at the minute when, when abusers are doing all this toxic stuff, the church is generally supporting them, you know, or when he should see his children, you know, fathers should see their children, but you know, like, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so we have to make it so when abusers try to be abusive, they discover it doesn't work. And the more that they discover that, the more they're, they're going to stop, they're going to realize they can't do that. You know, the reasons abuse is abuse is because they can. So we have to stop it. We have to make it so they can't. <laughs> like it's, love, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, but I love the quote you, that you give from Dr. Liz Kelly and Dr. Nicola Westmoreland. They write, can a leopard change its spots? No, because a leopard is born with spots. It does not make the choice to continue to have them. Men are not born violent. They derive benefits from not being held accountable for the use of violence and abuse. And just as they make decisions about other areas of their lives, they can choose to stop being violent and abusive. Perpetrator programs can help them make those changes. I just, I love that. Um, that really spoke to me, that quote, you know, um, from your book, that it, is, it kind of sums up what you were saying about the socialization you know, and the, the testing and 
um, try and see where are the boundaries, what, what can I get away with? But, but the, if, we're, if we don't challenge it, if we don't um, say, why are you saying that about your wife? Why, why are you speaking to her? You know, then, then it's just going to escalate, isn't it? And like you said, it, it, it can, in some cases, escalate to murder. Yeah, and it, you know, I think it's not, sometimes it's just about not laughing. You know, that's what my husband, particularly in like male-only groups where, you know, kind of sexist jokes are told and he's just like, not funny. Just yeah. <laughs> like, it does mean you're a bit of a killjoy, but actually, do you know, like it works because not, you won't be the only person in that room that's uncomfortable. And, you know, so I think there is that, we have that responsibility to reduce the space that abusers have to abuse um, and churches are in a massively strong position to do that if they choose to take that responsibility seriously yeah, but it, but i loved i loved the last little bit of that perpetrator programs can help them make those changes you know so it's not just that you need to change but here's a, here's something that can show you how to change yeah and a perpetrator program so the respect the national perpetrator help if people google respect phone line and um, they can find out more um that you can ring what them and they'll tell you where your nearest perpetrator program is and um, what resources there are um i think the thing is the challenge with perpetrator programs is they can help somebody to change but they're only spending maybe like three hours a week in the perpetrator program then they go to the world where so i think the thing is we can that alongside perpetrator programs we need to be building a society where there's there's less space for abusers to mm. enact those abusive behaviors because if they're going into a session which says no no your wife isn't a possession that you own and then they go home and watch porn <laughs> like do you know what i mean like they're going to be like oh well women are supposed to be used and abused and and so like we you know when everything we do on this is there's nothing neutral we're either reinforcing or challenging abusers ideas mm. and so it's about thinking in, in every interaction and in every word we use and everything we do we need to be thinking about how are we challenging or um you know reinforcing i should have said i think i've mentioned my husband like since i talked about my story i should have said that i got remarried <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, it's like, it's like a different husband i always say he's the good one the good husband so yes yeah, so i got remarried we've been married for 13 years now and um yeah like um it's been great so i think um yeah i think there's there's um it's important that we we do this challenge but i just thought i better put that in there in case it was like when what i don't understand it's like yeah there's no, a new one <laughs> Yeah. upgraded a new model <laughs> yeah. yeah but natalie this has been such a joy for me i have i could spend another hour or so with you um this is great stuff um do you have any last words for our listeners i think if if anybody's listening to this and they're recognizing anything that i've said that could feel like it's it, there's abuse going on in their situation or with somebody they care about um the the if, if it's safe to use a computer lots of abusers control women through um keeping you know looking on their computer and stuff so obviously you might need to use someone else's computer or whatever um or a phone or whatever or make sure you delete your history and that kind of stuff but um if you um, search domestic abuse and your local area, um, you'll probably be able to find out what the local helpline is. There's a national helpline, which is 0808-2024-7, but it's really overly subscribed. So it, local services are gonna be able to help you much better than the national service will. So if you can't find a local service, do call them 0808 
2024-7 and even if you are it's not you that's being abused but you're you're listening to this and you're recognizing there's somebody that you care about who might be being abused you can contact one of those local helplines and they will um they will be able to advise you on how to support a family member or friend. So I think I would say, you know, if this is going on for you or for someone you care about, like one of the most radical things that women can do is to trust their own feelings and to trust their instincts that we're taught so often to shut down. Oh, it's me. It's me. I'm, I'm just making it up. There's, there's nothing really bad going on. Like, so, you know, I always say this to girls as well, trust yourself. So I think if you're listening to this and any of this has made you feel a bit like, Oh, is that going on? Don't squash it down. And we're all tempted to do that because it makes life a lot simpler if it's not abuse. But if there is stuff going on that you're like, maybe that is what's going on. Do just do some investigating, do some listening, reading up and you know, my book might help. It's got lots of stuff around being able to to recognize what abuse actually tangibly looks like which we haven't talked about a lot today so that might be really helpful to to have a read through um yeah and just um you know if you're in a position where you are supporting people keep on keeping on loving them and being there unconditionally you know i think it can be really hard if we're supporting someone and they go back to their partner and we've invested all this and then suddenly they're back there you know actually we need to be working in ways that are sustainable that mean that if it takes you know 20 years that we can still be there for that person, that we can still love them and, and walk with them on that journey that they're going on. Um, yeah, so I think th those are just some kind of more stuff for people who might be listening and struggling in some way. So, yeah. Thank you. And do you have a website where people can check out yeah, your work? People or? go to um, nataliecollins.info. Um, they can find out more about my work and um, they can find me on Twitter as at GodLovesWomen with underscores between the words um if you get if you go on there you can follow me on there and i usually spent a lot of time ranting and there's a few pictures of the dogs and dog and cats <laughs> it's not all yeah. miserable so yeah so this is not all the heavy stuff sometimes there's no. some no 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 and even to be fair though even with the book i tried to write it in a way that like i found that when i started writing it i'd originally planned to share i share my story throughout the book and i'd planned to sort of share my story at the end because normally when i speak and train and stuff i share my story at the end of training um but i found that my tone in the book was like oh have a bit of cake now this is a bit sad let's do and i was like there's no way i can have that tone without explaining it's my own story or it just sound a bit like like really heartless so yeah, yeah. So the book itself is like to be um you know i'm generally I'm generally a fun person so like you know it's interesting being in this line of work but I think you know um actually there's something about laughter and joy that when we've been subjected to abuse that there's something about being able to laugh and find joy and even in mm. the ludicrousness of how abusers behave that actually is part of that healing and part of that recovery in and of itself wow. yeah wow thank you so much Natalie thank you for having me oh it's been a joy I, I've learned I've learned from you I've um yeah thank you thank, thank you for you. the work that you do thank you for coming and sharing with us today and just being you thank you